going on, baseball fans? Welcome to episode four of This Week in Baseball with Diamond Digest. Welcome back. If you're a longtime listener and if this is your first week, welcome to the show where we recap everything that's happened in the past week of baseball if you're trying to catch up outside of your favorite team. A lot to talk about this week. A lot more difficult to put together the uh, rundown for this week because there was so much going on so much to try and talk about. And this week, I'm once again joined by Callie Sai. Callie, welcome back. And Thank Matthew you. Penn and Ryan Rudy are making their appearances on the podcast. So, gentlemen, welcome. How are you both doing? Thank you. Doing well. Same here. Thanks for having me. Oh, absolutely. Love having people from the podcast. These are, an, are for the podcast, another two great analysts we have on our very talented Diamond Digest staff. Callie, how are you doing? You getting Good. tired of seeing me every week yet? No. <laughs> can't say that I am. You're lying. But, like I said, we've got a full rundown this week for you. We'll talk about some of the usual stuff, the standings, recent COVID updates. But in terms of just general news and storylines around the week, or league, I think this week um, has certainly stood out for me in these past four weeks that we've been doing this in terms of information. But I won't get too far ahead of ourselves. Let's start like we do every week. If the season ended today, which it very well could because of COVID, here would be the final standings. In the AL East, the Rays and the Yankees would be your top two teams. In the AL Central, the Twins and the Indians. In the AL West, the A's and the Astros. And the wildcard teams in the AL would be the White Sox and the Blue Jays. In the NL East, the Braves and the Marlins. The Marlins remain in the playoff picture. The NL Central features the Cubs and the Cardinals. The NL West, the Dodgers and the Padres. And the NL wildcard teams would be the Rockies and the Diamondbacks. So again, four NL West teams back in the playoff picture. So from week to week, we're still seeing a lot of that shuffling, moving around. You know, some teams move from that wild card back up into the one of the top two in the division. Certainly on the AL side, we're starting to see a lot more, I guess, normalization, if you want to call it that, of, you know, now we see the Rays, the Yankees, Twins, and, like, we're starting to see the teams that, if you told me to pick the playoffs, I would have expected to see these teams. But at the same time, you know, the Marlins, the Cardinals, still being in the picture despite having – dealt with COVID, Marlins, the same story, Diamondbacks hanging in there. The NL still seems to be a little bit more of that crapshoot going on right now. Well, wasn't the NL the same way last year? It was more even across the board compared to the AL, which was dominated by a few uh, much stronger teams like the Astros and the Yankees. So I don't really think the... I don't really think NL is that surprising, but the AL, I think that we're now seeing more of a return to norm, a return to the standard deviation of things in there. That's a good point because that's kind of what, you know, when everyone was worried, oh, 60 games, 60 games, is that enough? Is there going to be too much variation? At the same time, you know, 60 games is still a lot of ball games. And it's not 162. It's not the the complete divestion of variance that you would expect to see playing only 60 games. But at the same time, it's enough to where, you know, 
like a team like the Red Sox, who most would say over 162 didn't have the pitching to get into the playoffs. Over 60, they didn't have enough pitching to get into the playoffs either. So, mm-hmm. so you're kind of seeing that the good teams find the way to rise to the top, the bad teams find the way to fall to the bottom, and everyone else kind of has to figure out if they're in or out in the middle. And I feel like that's any season, to be honest yeah. with you. And, you know, we're pretty much halfway at this point, and already everybody knew the Dodgers were going to be baseball's best team. And right. far and away, they have the best record and best run differential. So What is it, like plus 70? Plus 71. That's insane. But looking at the AL, you know, the top seven teams have really separated themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, there's another subgroup kind of for that eighth spot between Toronto and Baltimore. And there's a bunch of bad teams. There's not really much, you know, between the seventh and eighth team, there's two and a half games, which is right. quite a big difference at this point in the season. So I thought that was interesting. And I mean, that's also a function too of like you're saying, the, the top teams are really separating themselves, the top seven. Right. They're those teams that we expected to kind of be in the middle, maybe even the Red Sox would kind of hang around. The Angels would probably hang around and kind of, you, you know, when we started talking about the season, it was like, all right, you know your top six teams. The Yankees, Rays, Twins, Indians, A's, Astros. You know those are your top six. You know your bottom feeders are probably the Orioles, the Tigers, teams like that. And then you had those five teams in the middle, the, the White Sox, the Red Sox, the Blue Jays, the Rangers, those types of teams where it's like – And the Angels. would compete for the Wild. Right. Those Angels are that fifth team where it's like, all right, take two of those top two, – take two of those five. And I mean, we're still seeing that, the White Sox and the Blue Jays currently being two of those five. The only difference is the Angels, the Rangers, and the Red Sox haven't been nearly as competitive um, as we would have expected. And the Orioles are still in that picture. And the, yeah, the problem is the Orioles have now inserted themselves into that picture instead of teams like the Red Sox. Their hitting is incredible. Yeah. They they continue to surprise me week to week, and even Pat as they Val, drop more ball games. Pat Val, whatever his name is, he's one of the best hitters among shortstops in Xwoba. Right. Yeah. I mean, you look at that team, you wouldn't expect that to be the hitting, I guess, factory of sorts this year that it is. It, it's but not – it's – Pedro Sabrina's looking variance. like an all-star. Right. It, it does speak to some of the variants of it. Who had the Orioles <laughs> being a better offense than the Reds at this point? Right. I mean, the, the NL Central, if I look at it, I mean, you knew the, you knew the Cubs were going to be there. But you almost expected them to have a little bit more competition going through it. it, it the, the Reds really haven't caught fire despite having Sonny Gray and Trevor Bauer leading the rotation. Luis Castillo's another name there. The Brewers' lack of depth behind Christian Yelich and um, Brandon Woodruff is becoming very apparent. And a fair missing that Trent Grisham, yeah. Right, yeah, and exactly. It's like they traded one of their best pieces right now over to the Padres. So, I, I don't know. It's interesting. Yeah, and it's hard to know what to make of the Cardinals, too, especially because right. we haven't seen them as much as, as most other teams. It's a good point. I mean, between both the Marlins and the Cardinals, you're kind of wondering, okay, now that you're seeing a few more games, I mean, the Cardinals are only at, what, 16 games currently. Mm-hmm. I, I, I still don't know what to make of those types of teams. And, yeah, and the Cardinals are pretty much exactly middle of the road. Right. Eight and eight. 
plus five run differential haven't excelled in on either side of the ball but haven't been bad and so they're kind of just there at this point <laughs> i mean the, the thing is though mediocre is, yeah if enough yeah. gets you into no, the playoffs that's what i was gonna year. say when when more than half of the teams are making the playoffs we're already looking at the nl where the two wildcard teams are under 500 right now. right i mean you you look at that you almost you, you want to be able to say you're 500 in. i i don't i personally like the expanded playoffs I don't like teams under 500 getting in to the expanded playoffs. I'm much more comfortable with the current AL wildcard picture as it is, where the wildcard teams and Blue Jays are still, but the Blue Jays are a team on the up and coming where I could see them finishing this year over 500. Yeah. At the same time, I could see the Diamondbacks and the Rockies finishing under 500 and still making the playoffs. I think that's the the danger of the expanded playoffs is, you know, it's fun and I support, I completely support it, but I'd prefer to see the teams getting in to be above 500. Um, just which isn't a hard with 16 teams making the right. playoffs. That's over half the league. Yeah. It's going to be tough for them all to be above 500. Just the way it falls out. Right. It's, mean, cer- it's certainly not a guarantee. You got well, six they- teams right now in the NL with 14 losses. So whereas in the AL, there was, you know, the top seven teams, and then the next group. There's this whole group that just out of the playoffs and could get in right there. Right. And uh, as it has done with most things, COVID throws a wrench in it too because you've got the Cardinals and the Marlins playing schedules that are a lot more brutal in comparison with teams that have been playing their whole schedules out so far. So either A, they don't like they struggle down the stretch because they're playing so many games mm-hmm. and falter or B they make the playoffs and then they get there and their team is more worn out than the rest. So it's going to be interesting the impact that that has on the playoffs as well. Um, and that was one more thing I wanted to mention with the Cardinals is it's just hard to see them coming out of this really strong, even if they are a team that's hypothetically strong enough to make the playoffs because they've, ended up with such a brutal schedule now over the rest of the season. And, you know, even some important games, like they have 10 games against the Cubs in this season. All of those 10 games are played at Wrigley now. So even Mm -hmm. stuff like that makes things a lot more difficult for the Cardinals because they pretty much have to make a bunch of accommodations to be able to get their full schedule in. You bring up a good point about – oh, go ahead, Callie. What teams like the Cardinals, like the Marlins, who are competing – in this shortened season, I think they will be very interesting teams to watch as the trade deadline approaches to see if they mm. buy at the deadline. I mean, the Marlins have already come out and said they're planning to be buyers. Like, in, in what year would you expect that in the middle of their rebuild? Yeah. Um, well, and that makes the trade deadline interesting to me, too, because if so many teams are so close to being in the playoffs, what teams are legitimately going to be sellers? Right. We've already seen the Red Sox sell a couple of bullpen pieces, but beyond that, what teams are ready to concede at this point that they are not trying anymore? They're just going to sell whatever important trade pieces they have. I mean, off the top of my head, it's the Pirates, the Red Sox, and the Mariners? Maybe the Rangers? I mean, the Angels are behind the Mariners and the standing, so maybe they sell. But is what I'm hoping. But I got pounds for something. The Angels are an interesting case because what what on that do you almost want to sell, though? They're I trying to compete. 
in the near future because they got right. long-term contracts with Rendon and Trout. So they like, can't really start a rebuild right now. Right. You're trying to compete now. You, I, I, I saw somewhere rumors around David Fletcher's name being floated out there. Like that might be the only name. I look at that team. I'm like, I could see him being a valuable enough trade piece to where they get something back. I, I wouldn't want to sit there and trade anyone else. Tommy Listella is in a, in a contract year. Anderson Simmons in a contract year. You're not going to get much for him. Yeah. Um, Fletcher isn't in a not Fletcher. Listella isn't in a contract year. 2021 is contract. Oh, 2021 is a f- contract year for Fletcher. Yeah. Okay. Yes. So I mean. Still not a great return, but probably a better return than someone in their contract year. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. It, it'll be interesting to see what the Angels do. That, that's one team that does interest me. Um, yeah. But since we did bring it up, let's talk a little bit about that Phillies-Red Sox trade and then get a little bit into the fun hypothetical side of things. So as Ryan mentioned, the Phillies and the Red Sox completed a trade. The Phillies, who are slowly falling out of contention, at a very unexpected pace, to be honest with you. They tried to shore up their bullpen, trading for Brandon Workman and Heath Hembree from the, I guess, selling Red Sox. I wouldn't call them the rebuilding Red Sox yet. In return, the Red Sox received Nick Pavetta and Connor Siebold. You probably know three of those four names. Siebold is probably the name you're not too familiar with. He was a 2017 third-round draft pick by the Phillies out of Cal State Fullerton. He pitched 40 double-A innings last year, so the highest he's made it is double-A. 2.25 ERA in those seven outings. So he is a starting pitcher, decently highly regarded, but at the same time, he was only floating around the mid-teens, late 20s when talking about where he would fit into the Red Sox um, top 30 prospect list. So an interesting name, but a name that likely isn't going to be much more than a wild card type piece. And as we know for the Phillies, Brandon Workman has already pitched and struggled in a game as the Braves lost to the Phillies last night. And Braves Workman was on the mound for Braves it. Braves beat the Phillies. Yeah. Oh, the Braves beat the Phillies, yes. And I walk off. And I walk off, yes. Um, so already some early struggles for Brandon Workman. I but. think that it was a good return for the Red Sox because Workman, he had a good 2019, but he wasn't mm-hmm. a lead close by any means. He's not Josh Hader. He's not Roldis Chapman. Uh, Henry's a good, also a pretty good middle reliever. Uh, but they're not elite, and they're also relief pitchers, so their value's going to be dropped by that overall. But getting someone who has a 50-50 chance at Contributing to, at the major league level, I think that's a very good return for two relievers, especially when you're not going to be using those relievers a lot. Yeah, the need for a reliever on a rebuilding team is very low. Um, so I think you bring up a good point. You know, even though Nick Pavetta, who's someone that has shown flashes, really has never hit the potential that I think the Phillies would have expected him to, and. Connor Siebel's kind of the same way. That's another wild card type pick. It's, you know, Nick Pavetta can help shore up the Red Sox rotation at this point and kind of help them get through those innings. Um, and I don't know, maybe a change of scenery helps him. But it, 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 you're right, Kelly. It is a good, solid enough return for two relievers where 
you know, you're almost trying to get whatever you can for them because you don't need relievers like that um, yeah. when you're in the middle of a rebuild season or selling off season, if you don't want to call it a rebuild yet. And uh, one other thing to note is that the players that the Red Sox got out of the trade have a lot more team control than the guys the Phillies got. Workman's in the last year of his contract, and Hembry only has one more year of arbitration before he hits mm-hmm. free agency. But the Red Sox get a full three years of arbitration with Pavetta. And as we mentioned, Seabolt hasn't made the majors yet. So that'd be a full six years of team control when he hits the majors. So if either of them turns into anything, that's a solid pitcher that the Red Sox have around for at least three years to come. Right. Um, compared with Workman and Hembry, who after this season weren't going to be much of anything for the team anyway. Yeah, I mean, you're looking at it, the Phillies are, from the Phillies' perspective, they're slowly falling out of the NLE's picture. In order to keep themselves there, they got to shore up the bullpen. They're going to take whatever arms are available at this point. And I, I think you understand the move from both sides. I don't think the Phillies will necessarily be too worried over what they gave up. And I think the Red Sox could find something interesting in Pavetta. Yeah, well, it's it's interesting to look back now at the pitching talent that the Phillies have traded away in mm-hmm. the last week. I mean, everyone was kind of confounded by they traded away Addison Ross, who's been one of their better relief pitchers in the minor leagues when that's exactly what they need is relief help. Right. So this this trade does make more sense to get relief help at the major league level. But if it doesn't pay off for the Phillies this year, they might um, they might see some long-term just um, you know, they're giving up a lot of team control on some talented pitchers um, to buy into this year. So they, uh, they're hoping that that <laughs> starts to pay off at least a lot more than Workman allowing a walk-off in his first appearance. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Not ideal. I don't think it's controversial to say that the Phillies were trying to emulate the Astros in their rebuild, but safe to say it has not gone well for the Phillies so far. Yeah, the Phillies are that team where it's like there. There's a lot of potential on paper. That the, on paper, that's a really good ball club. That yeah, just no, really has always, not put it together. I was always confused by their record not quite matching up because you think about all the talent they have, and mm-hmm. it really does, you know, fault. Like given the rebuild they've gone through, it does. They do lose a lot of important pieces after this year. I mean, they've just put a lot into buying a couple of bullpen arms, and Workman's gone after this year. Um, this is Real Mudo's contract year, so if they don't re-sign him, he's gone, and that leaves a huge hole in their lineup. Isn't Gregorius on a one-year contract? Yep. I think Gregorius is on a one-year deal. So they've got a lot of the big names now on their roster only around for this year. And they've been in a bunch of games this year. Just last night, they gave up all six runs in the final three innings of the game. They fixed that bullpen, you know. Could seriously help them get into that playoff picture as we come down the stretch. And, you know, the National League, as we, uh, the entire National League, but also the National League East is still pretty wide open. I mean, you know, they're sitting at the bottom of the division, but they're only five games behind the division leader, Braves, and they're three games behind second place spot right now. So, you know, with 35 games to go, 37 games to go, you know, they, they still got a lot of ground they can make up, but man, this is a pretty, pretty important year for them. Absolutely. I think that's a team where, you know, they didn't go through a rebuild per se, but when you got a lot of young talent, you spend the type of money they did on guys like Real Muto and Bryce Harper and Zach Wheeler. When when you put that sort of money out there, 
you're expecting a larger return than what they've gotten so far. I think that's fair to say. And I don't know. They will certainly be someone to watch closely as we work through this season. But while we're talking about trades, this is the more fun part of this. You know, the trade deadline's coming up, and, you know, we all have our favorite teams. Ryan, you're a Cubs and a Royals guy. Kelly, A's and Padres. Matt, Matthew, you're a Nats guy. We, we all have our teams, and we're all thinking about, you know, what ways can the team be improved? What ways can we improve this roster? Where, where are these weaknesses that we see as fans? So now that we're talking about trades a little bit with the trade deadline coming up, why don't we all take a minute and maybe explain maybe a hypothetical trade that you'd like to see your favorite team make? I'd give up this to get this. Maybe not necessarily the players involved if you're not that confident, though Kelly looks like someone who is always that confident. But at the same time, you know, identifying weaknesses on your ball club and who can help fix those weaknesses. Matthew, I'll start with you and who you might think or where you might see for the Nationals. You know, maybe it's a player, maybe it's a certain position. What would you target the trade line, trade deadline if you had one move to make and you got to convince the owner to make the move? Right, and honestly, this is a confusing season as a Nats fan. You know, Fair. coming off that World Series championship last year, obviously Rendon left, but brought back most of the pieces, and yet here we are, ten and fourteen, and out of the playoff picture. So, at this point, I'm not ready to write off the season yet. So I'm not going to sell any of the big name players, especially trying to compete in the next couple of years. But at the same time this was a lineup I was expecting to produce that hasn't been yet. I'm not sure where we need that extra help. The bullpen's been good, which has been unusual in recent years. Starting pitching, I mean, Strasburg's hurt, but you got Scherzer, you got Corbin that you expect to do well. Mm -hmm. So if anything, it's still that infield spot that Rendon gave up. And they brought up Garcia, they brought up Kibum, but... If you're trying to compete this year, a veteran infielder might be the place to go. Interesting. So you're going with a veteran infielder. All right. I mean, that makes sense. The Nationals have a notoriously strong rotation. The bullpen's been solid. You resigned a lot of good bullpen guys. I, I think if you're looking at it, you almost go down the list. You're like, this is really the only place left I can go. Right. This team's just at some point. This team's just got to start competing, and playing good ball yeah. games. Yeah, producing, producing at this point. So no, I think that's, an, that's a very interesting position to be in if you're looking at it from the Nationals. Callie, what about you? You can pick A's or Padres. You can pick whatever you want. You've got two playoff teams. I'm going teams. with the A's, and uh, I'm going to pit more specific than what Max did. Uh, I think the A's should trade for Tommy Lestella, giving up Dalton Jeffries, James Caprillion, and Sheldon Noisy for him. Now, the A's' okay. biggest weakness is undoubtedly – uh, second base. Uh, you could argue mm-hmm. it's the back end of the rotation, but Manaya, he's he's doing fine. And with Puck coming back, I don't think it's crazy to imagine the A's going a bullpenning route with some of their games. But second base is what the A's need. And what the Angels have is a very talented second baseman, but what the Angels don't have is pitching. So that's what the A's are going to give the Angels in Dalton Jeffries and James Caprillion. Now, both of these players are incredibly talented, but their value is dropped quite a bit 
by their injury history. Mm-hmm. Uh, Caprillion, he only made his debut in the majors uh, few last week, I think, and he's 26. Uh, Jeffries, he, he deals with a lot of arm stuff. Both are incredibly talented, uh, but there's that injury history that makes you question, should we take a chance on these guys? Uh, Noisy, he is a infielder who you can put anywhere on the, anywhere on the diamond in the infield. He, you can rely on him for some very good pop. Uh, contact skills are a bit iffy at the major league level, but he's a strong infielder with both the glove and the bat. Not really someone you want to rely on long term, but to fill a hole, you can count on him. Also, Lestella is left-handed, and the A's need that line of diversity that he can provide. Tony Kemp's currently the A's lefty second baseman, but uh, he hasn't been doing stellar. I mean, he has a 99 WRC plus, which is great, but he has like a 400 Babbitt, I think. So the A's need an upgrade there. Giving up Jeffries and Caprillion, who are some top prospects in the organization first, but with Lazardo, with Puck, with Manaya, with Montas, Scott, you're going to be a pretty strong rotation for a good while. Yeah. Bassett, I, I, another one who's strong. I, I think you look at that team, and I personally, I've watched a few A's games recently, and it's, it is second base where it's like there, there's a very clear weakness there um, for the A's. And, you know, I don't think it keeps them from – the playoffs by any means, but I think if you're looking to make a deep run, shoring up that last major um, part of the lineup, part of the defense, I, I think that'll be helpful. I think Tony comes a great role player. I think having someone like that off the bench is great. I, I don't think that's a long-term starter. Um, Ryan, you've got the Cubs and the Royals. You've got two very different teams. So I, I'm guessing I know which one you'll choose, but let's see what you got to say. Yeah, so even just while Matthew and Callie have been talking, I've been sitting here thinking it over a lot. (laughs) And I'm honestly, so talking about the Cubs first, I'm honestly about split 50-50 over whether they should make a trade at all. Because, interesting. I mean, I think the Cubs position player-wise are in a situation like the Nationals where, you know, you had good production out of the lineup for the first beat, like, first good while of the season mm-hmm. um you know ian happ is everything that i hoped he would be um he's really been a stud this year anthony rizzo's hitting pretty well but nobody expected and no cubs fan would have been happy if you told them that about halfway through the season jason kipnis has the second highest wrc plus on the team and ultimately i think that's just bad luck so far and it's due for a change i mean chris bryant and javier baez Obviously, this isn't their true talent level as hitters, and they're bound for some regression. And so I think you just have to, to count on that in the lineup. And it's really frustrating, given that that's what we've been saying for the last three years since 2016, watching the Cubs, is that there yeah. just has to be more talent in this lineup than it's showing. But there's, I don't think there's anything you could reasonably want to give up to acquire any more talent for the lineup. Um, the bullpen for the Cubs is a different story. And that's where I'm debating whether a trade is worthwhile. My only hesitation there is that I don't know what the Cubs would give up. 
because I think that a lot of teams are not going to be willing to give up prospects, and I think that the Cubs are certainly one of them. And so I don't know that there's any trade to to acquire a reliever better than the Cubs have that would be worth the price. And yeah, it's hard to say because because the Cubs have a lot of rookie options for the bullpen, mm-hmm. and I think that there is enough talent there to make something work and to piece something together. But you know, the last thing you want when the last thing I want when saying something like that is to eat my words ultimately and sure. that will be the team's downfall. Um, but you know, they've put a lot into the bullpen in recent years. A lot of their you know, they haven't had much room to make transactions, but most of the effort they've they've made is towards bullpen transactions. And one other thing is that when the starting rotation returns to full health, that will bump Alec Mills to the bullpen, which will also help because he's shown in a starting role that he can eat up innings mm-hmm. and do it at at least a league average level. So I'm kind of I'm kind of split on whether the Cubs should make a trade for a reliever. And honestly, they could trade out of that that young kind of bullpen depth they have. And they have a lot of guys like James Norwood, um, Dwayne Underwood Jr., Brad Week, those types of guys, Dylan Maples, where they have shown a lot of talent, but they haven't actually shown the success. So if the Cubs are able to make a trade where they turn one of those guys and maybe a prospect into a reliever that's just a little more established, that may help this season. Um, in the short term, to put together a bullpen that's a little bit more reliable. Um, now, with regards to the Royals, <laughs> they need to trade Trevor Rosenthal. And, you know, I the last two years, two years ago, I was calling for the team to trade Whit Merrifield. Didn't happen. Last year, a lot of people were calling for the team to trade Ian Kennedy and eat some of his contracts to get some, some good value out of that didn't happen. And now Ian Kennedy is sitting in the bullpen posting an an ERA over eight. (laughs) So once again, the Royals have some valuable trade capital Mm -hmm. and with Rosenthal, they need to actually capitalize on it. Nothing about a reliever sitting on a rebuilding team um, is a positive thing. (laughs) And last year it was so, so frustrating because we saw the Giants make almost an identical trade with Mark Melanson. Mm-hmm. And the Royals stood pat, didn't trade Ian Kennedy, and got nothing out of it. And, you know, I don't know if it's stubbornness or what, but when, you know, they have Ian Kennedy on such a big contract and they're paying him to sit in the bullpen when they're not contending. And now it's actively harming them as well. So. Yeah. You know, with Rosenthal, they need they need to make a deal happen, and that's that's first and foremost, I think, priority wise. It's Melanson, and not Melancon. I think it's. Melanson. I don't know what it is. Yeah. I think it's Melanson. Maybe I've been saying it wrong all my life. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I'll start saying names after a while. I'm like, is that right? I don't know. I've heard this. Yeah. But I know you bring a lot of pirates broadcasts when he was good. That's fair. Mm-hmm. But, no, you bring up two very good points, Ryan. It's kind of, kind of similar to the Nationals where it's like you almost just need someone to produce at some point and someone to get it done because you have the talent. It's about getting it done at a certain point. You can't always just keep trading for it if you already have a lot of the talent. And the Royals are a different sort of thing where you don't want to hold on to the talent too long because if 
if you hold on to it too long and it's not going to be there when the Royals are eventually good, what's the point of holding on to it now? Just to make these games a little bit more manageable? I, uh, I've yeah. seen a rebuild work its course. I'm not someone who personally will sit here and say, yeah, I really miss when the White Sox had Joaquin Soria. And, you know, those games were fine at the end, and it was fine, um, but it didn't matter to me at the end of the day. It was good that they traded him. Um, yeah, and well, did. and the Royals are a really interesting case, too, because especially on the position player side, you know, you think of some of their most important offensive contributors now and last season, you know, Whit Merrifield, Jorge Soler, Ryan, uh, Ryan O'Hearn hasn't really been that good, but Hunter Dozier, they're mm-hmm. all 28 or older. Right. So it's not like they're going to be like this when Young, up and coming team team. again. Yeah. So, you know, they, they really... I think that they should be trying to capitalize on the value they currently have on their roster more. And it's interesting because they haven't looked like an awful team so far. Sure. But I don't think that this is the year for them to make the playoffs. You know, even right. if the playoffs are expanded, I just don't think they can hang. So I really believe that they should be trying to put as much as they can into the future. Um, and one other comment I had about the Cubs is, you know, even when you're we're sitting here saying, I hope the roster produces more, we did already see that. I mean, they started 13 and three. It was a mm-hmm. great start. It got a lot of people excited. Absolutely. So I think, you know, just because of a three and seven span since then, that still has them six games over 500 and with a three game division lead, that definitely shouldn't be press the panic button. We have to do something right. now. I think um, the natural fan reaction is to do that though. Yeah. Which, well, I, and it's, it's tough too, because even in the games we were winning, like there was a win against the Reds where, you know, you're up by two runs in the ninth inning. Kimbrell loads the bases and you get out of it with a one run win. So it's not like the bullpen was all fine and dandy then either, but right. I, I think that the, the, you know, it's definitely not time to press panic, but sure. No, that makes sense. I think that's completely valid. And I mean, I think it's more of the fan reaction in you to want to say, okay, let's freak out and X, Y, Z because of a bad stretch versus yeah. teams are going to produce a time. Teams aren't going to produce a time. It makes sense. Mm-hmm. But Actually, I thought you made another good point when you're talking about the Cubs originally, saying you don't know if the price is worth it. And we talked earlier yeah. about how there are fewer teams that are willing to sell and more teams that want to buy, which can knock gonna, that price up. Yeah, it's going to jack up the price, absolutely. Players that are worth trading. That's a really good point, Matthew. I mean, the, the less available resources, the more valuable those resources become and the more, I guess, even overinflated these resources will become. Um, so it, it will be very interesting to see how teams handle it. And you already see teams like the Marlins, who would you ex- be expecting to sell, say they're going to buy. So now you're starting to see that sort of fear, not fear, but I guess we'll just say fear for the lack of a better word at this point, that less teams are going to sell than you would anticipate. Um, mm-hmm. so which, Matthew, when it comes back to your point of now these resources become overinflated in terms of their price point. Um, it's, it's an interesting thing. But some other big news stories before we get into our own personal ones. You know, every week we like to provide a COVID update. It's been the Marlins, then the Cardinals, then the Indians. This week we've got the New York Mets. Thankfully, not nearly Uh, the sort of breakout. Yes, the Mets indeed. Not the sort of breakout we've talked about in weeks before. Not the huge storyline. But still something to keep an eye on. Something we like to point out week to week. The Mets did have to cancel out of precautionary reasons, their series against the Yankees. Again, something that was more precautionary. There were a few uh, positive cases that came up for the Mets. Um, 
something just to keep an eye on. Hopefully it does not become another sort of outbreak, but as we've seen so far, Major League Baseball is certainly willing to work with those outbreaks as they come through. Um, it'll be interesting if there ever is a huge outbreak like the Marlins and the Cardinals for reasons that don't involve teams breaking protocol, how Major League Baseball decides to handle it. Um, I think so far those two big outbreaks, Major League Baseball has gotten away with it because teams broke protocols. Um, so it'll be an interesting story to watch. Not, not Like I said, not a huge one this week. Um, but if you yeah. want to keep your eye on something, keep your eye on the New York match, the teams they recently played, where those positive tests might have started um, popping up. I believe it was only like one player, one staff member, but yeah. again, still something to keep an eye on. The Astros had to shut down their alternate training site. For, that's uh, a good point. Also, because yeah. of COVID. That's a good point. I mean, you're, you, that's better than the major league team, I guess. Because they've been kept so separately, it's not really great by any means. Yeah. Um, it, it's certainly not season-threatening, we wouldn't think. Um, but also yeah, something to keep an eye on. Yeah. Um, because now you're starting to have less and less resources available if your major league guys go down. Um, so, so that'll be an interesting uh, situation to watch. I did see that the other day, Cal. So that was a good point to bring up. Yeah, and um, somebody was tweeting – um, that the Mets and the Reds also had a positive case recently. Um, you know, that ideally, if we see them contain this well, that can be more of a model of what it'll look like moving forward mm-hmm. compared with the Marlins and the Cardinals, who um, kind of started things off with a poor example by yeah. both not being able to contain their um, their outbreaks. So hopefully, the, the Mets and the Card and the uh, Reds, excuse me, um, will be more exemplary of what this will like moving forward. But the fact that there are still continuous, um, like continually positive cases makes me wonder how this will look as we get to the end of the season. And it makes me think that there's almost not, not like there's almost no chance that every team is going to finish their 60 games. Yeah. Which that playoff picture will be decided in some way um, without every team having played an even number of games. Because we mm. saw with the Cardinals – they had an outbreak, what, five games into their season? And already, just because they missed about a week of play, they're cramming in the rest of their schedule just to finish 60 games in the same amount of time. Yeah. So if any other team has a massive outbreak like that, it's going to be tough for them to really try and fit the rest of their schedule in towards the end of the year. And we still haven't seen all 30 teams play on the same day since the first weekend, I believe, mm-hmm. which... It's not good over a month into the season that we haven't seen them all play the same day. Yeah. I mean, it's an unfortunate thing at this point. Um, But at the same time, something Major League Baseball has determined they are going to play through. And we, we talk every week. It's like, what's going to be the limit? What's going to be the limit? And... It'll be interesting. They've already started making plans, talking about maybe a playoff bubble. To keep things generally contained, I'm interested to see how that would play out, to be honest with you. Um, We'll see. So many fun things to talk about with COVID. But let's get to some of the other storylines this week. You know, we like to uh, talk about the call-ups each week, so some of the notable prospects for this week. Sixto Sanchez and Jesus Sanchez of the Marlins. Ryan Mountcastle of the Orioles. 
Three Tigers, Casey Mize, Tariq Skubal, and Isaac Paredes. The Tigers using those names to, oh, specifically Paredes, to break their 20, either 20 or 21 game losing streak against the Indians. So they were finally glad to see that come to an end. It was 20 or 21. Yeah. It was, I can't remember which it was, but it was a long one. Tristan <laughs> uh, McKenzie of the Indians debuted last night. He looked fantastic. Um, he makes Chris Sale look like a bodybuilder in terms of height and weight, <laughs> but he is a skinny dude who throws very hard. And finally, kind of a cool story, Mark Payton of the Reds, a 28-year-old journeyman, never really got his uh, chance to shine until this year where he has been able to make his major league debut. And I know, Callie, you've got a little fun fact about Mark Payton. So he was the Reds' rule size draft pick in 2019, but they sent him back for the A's after their outfield got preset with uh, Jesse Winker, um, Shogo Akayami, I believe is his name, uh, mm-hmm. and Nick Castellanos. But uh, now the A's traded him back to the Reds for cash considerations, and now he's made his debut. This has been a fun year for debuts, honestly. You're seeing a lot more names that you wouldn't expect to see. Maybe players who aren't necessarily ready by baseball's means. I mean, we even forgot one, Joey Bart in the Giants. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Teams that aren't even – I'm sitting here, I'm, like, thinking about I. It's so hard to remember all of them. Joey Bart's another one. Yeah. Um, you know, guys who you wouldn't typically expect to be there yet that have finally made their debuts. It's cool to see that. Um, and it's becoming something league-wide. And even in those top prospects getting their debuts, there's the Mark Paytons who get their debuts, which is arguably just as important. You know, someone working their butt off to get their um, major league dream. So, mm-hmm. very cool story. Yeah. Two other stories that have run the headlines that, you know, it would not be a This Week in Baseball podcast if we didn't discuss them. Don Brenneman and the Cincinnati Reds broadcasting debacle. As you know... Tom Brenneman said some unfortunate things on a in a hot mic situation on the broadcast. Whether or not it's a hot mic doesn't really matter. It matters that he said it. He has been removed from the Reds broadcast. He has been removed from Fox Sports football broadcast, placed on a suspension in what seems to almost be a legal thing before effectively firing him from his position. I hope that's what it is. Yeah. My my guess is this is a strictly legal sort of, we have to review the situation um, type covering of your butts for um, what's going on there. I wrote about that situation. I was just going to say that. But that was before he apologized. Uh, apologize. Oh. Yeah, the, the apology was interesting. There are two more things I want to say on that, and then I'll turn it over to you guys to talk about it a little bit. Um, one, if you haven't read Kelly's article, do so. I think that article is going to summarize the thoughts around the situation better than any of us could, to be honest with you. Kelly, I think you did an excellent job of being very thoughtful and being very mindful of the situation as you wrote about it. I think it was a very mature and impressive article, honestly, from my standpoint. Um, So if you're listening to this and you haven't read it yet, 
please go and do so. I think, it, like I said, it's going to explain the situation better than any of us sitting here right now can. Um, one other thing is the apology itself has become it, its own sort of uh, notable incident as Nick Castellanos hit a homer in the middle of it and Brenneman decided that his final likely broadcast on the airwaves was going to involve one final home run call in the middle of his apology. Um, but certainly an, yeah, certainly an unfortunate situation for Brenneman. Certainly not one you want to deal with if you're the Cincinnati Reds in this situation or Fox Sports in general. But certainly a situation that has needed to be dealt with in the way that it has been dealt with. Yeah, and you know, ultimately, what I would say, and what I've I've seen um, quite a bit, is the sentiment that the fact that this is something that he said and that it comes comes out like that so easily speaks to the culture in the broadcast booth and ultimately still the culture around baseball, and that's something that needs to change. And so, you know, it's it's ultimately necessary that he's held accountable for it um, mm-hmm. more than anything, and. You know, it's almost like it's almost hard to even call it unfortunate because he brought it on himself, and yeah. it's it's obviously not something that's entirely out of character. If if it's something that he's saying when he thinks nobody's listening, um, well, people were listening. The other people in the booth, the other people. It's a good production. point. Yeah, and it, exactly, that's that's part of it too. Is that that um, that you know the idea that it might have been okay if it wasn't picked up by the broadcast. Mm-hmm. Is is pretty, pretty not not okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah it's he a good felt point. comfortable say talking like that in front of them. What does that say about the other people in that room, as yeah. opposed to just him? Right. That's good point. Yeah. Um. His apology was very bad. He apologized to the people at Fox's employer. Mm-hmm. He apologized. For, uh, to uh, the LGBTQ plus community. Uh, and then he went on to say he didn't know what that word meant. God, I wish I was you not knowing what that word meant. It's people like Brenneman who make me fear about what being open about myself will entail if I continue to work in sports and baseball industry. I fear I have to fear maybe I won't get any job offers just because of who I am whereas this white guy can use his privilege his connections get a cushy job at as the voice for a major league team for years and imagine if you're a young questioning Reds fan hearing hearing a man who's the voice of your favorite team, a man that you've connected with so many pleasant moments, say that we're dripping with such venom in his voice. It's truly horrible, and I very much hope that they're working to fire him as soon as possible. I agree. There's nothing I'm going to be able to say that, you know, explains the situation or even sit here and pretend I can understand the situation in a way that others can, Cal, you being one of them. And I think as we've talked about, and we've seen, we've seen the reaction from both Reds players and social media in general. Um, 
Yes, a huge Give shout out to yeah. Amir Garrett and um, I forget the other player's name. Sorry. Um, but I, I think it speaks to a larger point of, you know, based on the overwhelming reaction, the overwhelming uh, reaction from both the player's standpoint and from social media standpoint, I, I think there's a way in which people are being vocal about this in a way that hopes to bring about change. Um, and I, I, I think, yeah. Um, and that's sentiment I saw too, is that, you know, I think that's really the most important part of it more so than whether Brenneman is fired and you can argue that he should be fired and I don't disagree with that, but it's most important that the community response has been as it is. Um, because like someone I was saying, I was reading a, a good Twitter thread from a, a man who's grown up a Reds fan. And I think, I'm not sure if he works in sports now or not, but he is a gay man. And so he was talking on how that, like how it's impacted him. And um, he was saying that he doesn't necessarily, he isn't necessarily calling for Brenneman to be fired because he doesn't want him to be a martyr for people who decry cancel culture. But it's important that the community response has been what it is. And yes, Brenneman should be fired, but no, that shouldn't be the most important part of the story. Yeah, I, I think Brandon must be fired because it shows that the MLB takes it seriously mm-hmm. and they're not going to give a platform to hateful people. Yeah, no, yeah. and that's equally important um, because especially in, in some cases, MLB has failed to come through and yeah. take this. What does, yeah, if he keeps the job, what does that say to the questioning Red's, Red's, kid, Red's right. fan who's a kid? I was talking about earlier, I was using as an example of a hypothetical it just teaches them that people are going to hate you and those people aren't going to be punished, which unfortunately may be the case in most of the time, but it shouldn't be the case that way. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Absolutely. And I think, Ryan, like you mentioned, Kelly, as you mentioned, the response on, like I said, too, the response on social media is hopefully going to drive change. Um, it, it's something that, you look at the responses and yeah, you're going to get your percentage of people who don't necessarily respond in the best way to the situation, but you're also going to get the overwhelming result or the overwhelming majority to where you hope that they can help bring about change. Yeah. Hopefully change does come because it seems like a near annual occurrence that some player has homophobic tweets emerge or something like this happens. Right. And again, all you can hope for is the continual movement towards change. And I think that the players speaking up as they did takes a positive step in that direction directly in Major League Baseball. It's one yeah, thing for social media. Absolutely. It's one thing for social media to be positive, for the fans to be positive in promoting change. It's another for the players to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, you know, Cal, your article on Sean Doolittle is a great example. Amir Garrett's a great example, I think. The more you see that type of response from players, you know, fans, it matters. Players, it matters mm-hmm. much, much more because those are guys directly in the game. Those are the guys we're all watching every day. Those are the faces we look up to. And I think those guys are incredibly important for any situation like this one. Mm-hmm. But let's cover one more big topic that's really been co- talking, going through the news lines this week. The San Diego Padres, baseball's unwritten rules. You know, this has been a fun week for Cali between the A's being so good, 
the Padres hitting a grand slam pretty much every night of the week. And Fernando Tatis Jr. just throwing up a middle finger in the face of baseball's unwritten rules. Um, Good for him. If you don't know what we're talking about here, I think we're all kind of on the same page and how we feel about it. Um, Tatis hit a home run with – or a grand slam, excuse me, in the eighth inning of a Padres-Rangers game. I believe it was the first one of the series. Uh, they're winning 10-3 in the eighth. He had a grand slam on a 3-0 pitch. The Rangers did not take too well to that. His own manager didn't take too well. To His that, own manager sure. didn't take too well to that. Um, and then the next day, with his team up six runs, he decided to steal third base. Another unwritten rule in baseball. And I'll let you guys talk for the majority of this. I'll get my thoughts out first because I have many of them on this topic. Um, but I, I'm trying to keep it short so you guys can do most of the talking here. The, the baseball unwritten rules is always curious to me. Um, not so much the content of the rules, but who's writing the rules and who's written Crotchety the rules. old white men. And, and it's not even just, it's not even that. It's when were these rules written by, by who? And this was done, you know, it, it's often the players that are now analysts who have been out of the game for 30 years or so out of the game playing it at least who are the ones deciding what the unwritten rules are. I'm not necessarily against some form of unwritten rules in today's game. If you're telling me the unwritten rules being played by today's game are done by those who are playing today's game. If all of the 21 year olds want to get around and decide that we're going to do X, Y, and Z, and we're going to treat this a certain way, I'm all for that because that's the people in the game playing the game how they want to play. What I have the issue with, and I think what everyone has the issue with, is the fact that these unwritten rules were written at a completely different point in this game. And now it's a bunch of 60- and 70-year-old ballplayers complaining the game isn't like it was when they played it. Well, no kidding, it isn't. Like, I don't know why that should be expected at the same time. And Mm -hmm. so my frustration is just the fact that, you know, you can complain the unwritten rules themselves are stupid, which they are, as we've seen so many comebacks from so many larger leads. That's just a stupid rule in the first place. Well, the fact that the Blue Jays did it within... The Blue Jays did it within the same week (laughs) where they came back from a 7-0 deficit. Like, you can't just give up on the game. And I think the Padres themselves once blew a 13-run lead to, like, the Mariners. I mean, I, I've seen a White Sox team give up a six-run lead in the ninth inning. Yeah. It was, what, like 2015, 20, something like that. I remember <laughs> I where I was sitting. last year. Yeah, uh, and I think I saw somebody else saying that the Rangers came within a run of overcoming a seven, that exact yeah. same seven-run deficit last season. They came within a run in the ninth inning. I, I just yeah. think it's foolish in this era of baseball to try and play by unwritten rules that were written in a different era of baseball. I think yeah. in a different era of baseball, 7-0 leads were actually insurmountable. I, I, I believe that. And if you want to give up at that point, well, I'm going to judge you as a player completely separately if you're going to give up at a 7-0 lead. That, that's a completely different story. Um, but sitting here and pretending the unwritten rules of – 
30 years ago are still going to apply to this year's games is foolish to me. If you want your own unwritten rules, that's fine. But the current unwritten rules, I, I, I don't care for that idea at all. I think it's foolish. I think it's stupid. I think MLB gets in, in its own way of controlling headlines by doing that. Yeah. I think you mostly covered that. I don't know that I have anything else to say. I just think it's hilarious that the Padres are now 5-0 and since then and have mm-hmm. hit grand slams in all but one of those games. Five and six. Yeah, five and five six. And six I mean, I don't know. I go on my mini rants once in a while. This is a, this is a topic I personally am passionate about because I'm someone who looks at – I hate teams that give up. I, I hate – as a fan watching that, I'm sure you guys can all sympathize with that. If it looks like – you know – I get a frustration. So the Sox were down 4-0 to the Cardinals last week. Lucas Giolito gave up four runs in the first inning. Team looked bad. Team looked real bad. Um, it looked like they kind of quit. And, you know, the excuse on social media from fans was, well, Giolito put him in a 4-0 hole. I'm like, yeah, he did it in the first inning, though. You haven't even batted yet. Yeah. Like, don't, don't tell me you gave up on the game and you lost all motivation because your pitcher gave up four runs in the first. It's the first inning. We play nine for a reason. Yeah. And it's frustrating from a fan standpoint to watch a game that does where, where a team looks like they gave up because a pitcher had a bad inning and put him behind early. Have the conviction to back up your guy. Mm-hmm. He's going to go out there and pitch the next couple innings. Have, have the conviction to back him up. And that's, what, and th- that's just my frustration as a fan. It's almost interesting, too, because, like, conceding in a situation like that is almost like admitting that the game isn't important. Right. Like, like if that were a playoff game, are you going to say, oh, team's dead, whatever? No, no. You're, like, you're going to hope for them to come back. Right. And even to take a recent example, last year, NLDS game four or five, Cardinals scored 10 runs on the first in the, off the Braves. Are the Braves mm-hmm. supposed to just roll over and give it to them? I mean, they kind of did, but is that really what you want to see? Right. I mean – Shoot, 2016 World Series Game 7. The Cubs were up like 6-2, to 6-3. to three. Are the Indians supposed to roll over and give them the World Series? Right. Yeah, like if you really believe that you're supposed to treat every game like that, why is there ever a situation where you're supposed to stop playing hard? Right. And I, I just find a frustration in we're choosing to live by, wanting to live by unwritten rules that benefit changing how you play the game based on the score in a way that doesn't promote playing harder, yeah. if that makes sense. It, the game changes by the score, and nine times out of ten, you should be playing harder based on how the score but, is dictating uh, it. But by the way, let the kids play. Yeah, let the kids play by the rules that were written by the people who are no longer playing. That's my frustration. That It really frustrates me that it's not so much the unwritten rules standpoint, it's who wrote them and what they promote. I just think it's funny. You get people from, hey, you didn't hustle out on an obvious 4-3 put out. You're not trying hard enough. Oh, you hit a home run in a 3-0 count. You're trying too hard. I think it's funny that we have people saying the exact same thing. Yeah. Uh, ironic, don't you think? I agree. I... Also the... Oh, go ahead. Okay, the second time he you know broke the unwritten rules when he stole third and, you know, up six or whatever. I think the bottom of that inning, the Rangers scored four runs, making a two-run game. And all of a sudden, you know, you got another four or five innings left, however long it is, in a two-run game. That's very winnable for both teams. 
he's trying to add on to that lead, and people are getting upset at him. Mm-hmm. Why? I so. I just think this is a scenario where, what does it look like for the kids watching TV, where your where your manager doesn't even have your own back because he's going by the unwritten rules that were around when he was playing. I believe Tingler played. If he didn't yeah. play, he's been around the organization long enough to know what the unwritten rules are. This isn't and a Tingler, brand new guy to baseball. I mean, we're talking about like sixty-year-old guys. Tingler's not even forty, is he? Right. No. I mean, there's, Tingler's there's a players, young new manager. There's players in the game older than Jace Tingler. Yeah, and and I think the frustration there being that's the guy that's going to make you look good as a manager. Yeah. Like, and, and you decided to buddy up with the unwritten rules. Um, I think that's frustrating. I I think that. If, when we look at this situation as a whole, I don't know how you guys feel about this. The most frustrating part for me was Tingler's reaction to it. Yeah, absolutely. But also, baseball isn't like football or soccer or hockey or basketball where you can reduce the other team's chances to score by parking the bus. Everybody gets the equal amount of chances to score yep. in baseball, so it's it's just foolish to not try and score as much as possible because the other team will have the same amount of chances as you to score as much as possible. Yep. Yeah. You're on equal footing, so mm-hmm. why not put an equal effort level onto the field? Yeah, I don't think there's ever a situation where I, I will feel it is okay to necessarily pack it in until you're losing 15 to one and it's the eighth inning. And now we're talking about saving bullpen arms. Let's let, let's talk about it then. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But not, not in today's game, not in today's game where scoring seven runs in an inning isn't nearly as rare as people will try and tell you it is. Mm-hmm. Yep. And uh, yeah, I think that's pretty much all there is to say about that. But <laughs> we're all on the same page though, which is yep. not unexpected for a young blog page that promotes the new wave of baseball. I, I don't think it's necessarily rare that we're all on the same page here, but Let's talk this about some of our, you know, individual storylines, you know, maybe more team centric to who we follow or the division our team is in. Let's talk about some other storylines. Who do I want to start with on this one? I'll start with Ryan. What's your storyline for the week? Sure. So mine might be one of the more like, I guess the bigger minor storylines you might say, um, which was that a couple days ago, I believe it was on Friday night. Josh Stomont was pitching in relief for the Royals and he threw a hundred mile per hour fastball, almost straight down the middle called for a ball. And if you haven't seen the video, I suggest you seek it out. Um, it's a good video. One of, one of the more <laughs> insane calls. Um, and, you know, ultimately Royals fans, I think the, the general sentiment was, well, you know, if this is what it takes to put Josh Stomont on the map, so be it. <laughs> um, because he has actually been one of the team's best players this season, and he's been a stud um, out of the bullpen. I purposely did not mention him, actually, when talking about trades, because I think that it would take a heck of a lot, um, realistically, to get him away from the Royals, because he's currently in his first season, mm-hmm. full season in the majors. Um, so they just, they have a ton of team control on him. He's a guy who realistically, I mean, he's what, 
let me check his age real quick. I think he's like, he's like 20. Yeah, 25, 25 26. 26. So realistically, he's still going to be around. Yeah, he's 26. Realistically, he could still be around in three, four years when the team's trying to compete again. So I think it would take a whole lot to pry him away from the team right now. Um, so I don't think he should get traded. But yeah, um, I think that, you know, people are, especially the uh, the robotic ump camp is really calling for <laughs> um, for that change to be made now. Um, and that was kind of a prime strong anecdote for what the heck are our umpires doing I mean, people are saying they're kind of working themselves off the field every night mm-hmm. because they're making calls like that. Um, I've been complaining more about the umpires this year than in recent memory. Um, yeah. Maybe it's because well, we're getting the same crews. I, I think with, you know, traveling umpiring crews, you're starting to see that, you know, you're seeing the same zone every night, so you're probably getting more frustrated from a fan perspective. Yeah. And, and it's not good for the robotic up movement. It's not good for – Catchers who are in the league because of their framing abilities, and it's not like it was a cross up either. No, it wasn't a cross up either. It was a fastball right down the middle. Nothing bad framing or anything. It was a Royals Twins game, so I didn't happen to be watching at the time, and I'm assuming most people didn't weren't watching. No. But the first time I saw it was Jeff Passan tweeted it, and he just like his caption was just "what." And I, I watched the video, and I was like, "Why did he tweet this? It's a hundred mile per hour fastball down the down the middle." And it's I watched ball. it like three times, scrolled down in the comments, and finally I realized that it wasn't a strike. <laughs> I was like, oh my goodness! So yeah, um, yeah, not much more to be said about that, but just kind of a strange and not so good uh, moment happenstance. <laughs> Capture the headlines however you can, I guess. But, Callie, what you got for us this week? What's your storyline? The A's are getting some surprising production from some surprising faces with Matt Olson struggling. Well, he has a 113 WRC plus. That's hardly struggling, but when you're expecting him to post like 130, 140, it is. Uh, Marcus Simeon, he's not a positive uh, WRC plus. Uh, but instead, the A's are getting some production from some unknown faces, both offensively and pitching-wise. So uh, the most obvious would be Robbie Grossman, who last year had just a 88 WRC plus and 1.2 FR. This year, he's already got 1.2 FR. He has uh, a 189 WRC plus and a 0.408 x roll. but he is overperforming slightly uh woba wise but it's still very very impressive from player who last year was just a slap ball hitter and now he's turned into a very good very powerful hitter uh chris bassett uh he was projected to start this year in the bullpen but due to injuries he was moved to the starting rotation he's really shined and i think that he is going to earn a starting role in the future, just based on this performance, he's worth uh, 0.5 FR so far. As a point, he has a 2.34 FIP, which is insane, and a 0.233. Oh wait, no, whoops, I was looking at the wrong notes. That's it. Has a 0.5 FR, 3.97 FIP, and uh, 0.309 x but Still very good for a starter that wasn't going to get a starting job this year. It's been a rock in that rotation. 
Birch Smith, prior to his forearm injury, was a beautiful surprise. Uh, yeah, he was worth 0.4 FR, which is insane for a reliever. Right. Uh, 2.34 FIP and a 0.233 XO. But I remember at the beginning of the season losing my mind because of the A's keeping him on the roster because prior to this season, he had like a 4, 5.04 year and even higher FIP, I believe. But his fastball has seen a drastic rise in spin, and that's seen a drastic rise in improvement, stats-wise. And Sean Murphy, the rookie catcher, you don't expect a lot offensively from rookie catchers, but he has been worth 0.5 F4. He has a 118 WRC plus and a 0.360 X robot. What's most surprising to me is his walk rate. He's shown old great late discipline. Uh, posting a 17.6 walk rate, which is very, very good, especially for a rookie, especially for a position that isn't relied on for much offense. It's been a wonderful surprise so far. It's also hitting the ball incredibly hard, but unfortunately, he has a low punch angle, so it's not really doing much work. I mean, when you're a team that's on the verge of winning 20 games, you're going to get some... Uh, production out of unexpected players and you know my fantasy team is appreciating Robbie Grossman currently but Matthew bring us home what you got um can talk we talked earlier about you know some of the call-ups in the league in general I want to talk specifically about the Nationals some of their youth that they've had this year whereas last year when they when the World Series one of their things was all the old guys they had on their team they're one of the oldest teams in the league this year, I think they're the only team in the majors with four position position players below the age of 23. Um, you know, obviously Soto, you got Robles, Kiboom, and then Luis Garcia is a new guy who made debut this year. Um, on the pitching side, last night, Will Crow made his debut. And while his ERA isn't looking good because of the way he, that his start ended, it wasn't all that bad. His defense didn't help him out made him get four outs in a couple of innings that weren't technically errors, so they added to his ERA, but he looked solid for his debut. Um, Dakota Bacchus, been great in his first couple of games, five innings, only one run, four strikeouts, so he's done well. Another uh, guy, Seth Romero, who struggled in his debut, gave up a couple of runs, but since then hasn't given up one in a couple of appearances. Uh, Kyle Finnegan has been great. Uh, 1-0, 9 in the third innings pitch, uh, 10 strikeouts, a .64 whip, already up to .8 war in his uh, first year. On the hitting side, I mentioned Kibum and Garcia. Um, Garcia, you know, just like Soto, came up left-handed hitter, hitting well right away, slashing 292, 320, .458. He's already got a homer, a couple RBIs. Then Kiboom, who's struggled a little bit hitting-wise, but it's been nine walks already on uh, the short season, up to half a war. So while I mentioned they might not want to be looking for trades because of these young guys, it is good in this short season to get them that experience to build going forward that their replacements, instead of looking for a trade, they could try to build from the inside the organization. I think you're, you're, you're going to see some of the – Typical struggles with youth. Um, I, I certainly don't think from an outside perspective and from a perspective of someone who's seen a lot of young talent come through recently, that early season struggles are nearly anything to worry about, especially in a 
a shortened season format such as this. You, you don't have much time to get comfortable before yeah, the true. expectations start ramping up. But I love this um, transition, so I'm going to keep using it every week. Let's close the storybook, and we'll turn on the TV, and we'll figure out what everyone's watching for this week. Mm. I love it. Kelly's probably tired of me hearing saying that, but... Kelly, we'll start with you. What are you watching this week? Um, I forgot what I put down. Was it uh, Marlins Nationals? It was. All right, yeah, so... <laughs> Two teams fighting in the National League is fighting for a playoff spot. Uh, should be interesting. Some uh, interesting pitching matchups. I mean, you obviously got Scherzer and Corbin on the National side, but Sixo uh, might make an appearance. Mm-hmm. Um, Alcantara. I didn't check the pitching matchups before this, but uh, there are some interesting pitchers on both sides. And some interesting teams that, you know, if you're the Marlins, you got to beat the Nationals. Yeah. If you're the Nationals, you really got to beat the Marlins. Beat the Marlins. Right yeah. So two teams that both need to beat the person they're playing. So uh-huh. I think those types of matchups you're going to be watching for each week. Absolutely. I know, Matthew, you're probably like, yeah, no kidding. I've been watching that. I've got that thing ticketed on my radar for quite a while now. For sure. Those are must-win games that Absolutely. just haven't been winning. I know, for sure. I mean, you talk about – the importance of every game, but those division games mean so much this year. I think it's hard to look at a team and say they're going to make playoffs, but they can't beat the teams in their division. But Ryan, what are you watching this week? Well, I'm going to keep on with that same idea. Um, it in the NL Central has seemed like no team can do very well against or outside the division. Um, and so the games in the division matter a whole lot more. Mm-hmm. And this week we've got Reds Brewers, which will be a very important matchup for either of those teams since they've both kind of been middling a lot more than people expected. Yeah. Um, so it's potentially a chance for one of them to get a lot of momentum and also uh, really leapfrog off the other and uh, kind of bury them in the division a little bit. So the Cubs and the Cardinals are off playing AL teams. Um, that is a chance for the Reds and the Reds or the Brewers to assert themselves a little bit more and bring themselves back into the picture because they're both sitting in third place in the division currently out of the playoffs. Someone's got to grab hold of that division yeah. or that second spot in the division. But Cubs yeah. have got a pretty good hold on first. Someone's got to grab a hold of second. But mm. And Matthew, what are you watching this week? Going to the West Coast, watching the Rockies. we got two four-game series coming up this week against the Diamondbacks and the Padres. And the Rockies started well this year. You know, Blackman making headlines with his great average, and they were doing well. But they've lost six straight, 9 of 10, and 10 of 12. And yet, even with that, they're still barely holding on to a playoff spot. So these are some big series coming up if they want to stay in that spot and keep it moving forward or just fall off the face of the earth, continue this slide. And that could also get closer to the to getting a more secure playoff spot if they beat the Rockies. Yeah. I mean, you're starting to see a theme develop as we get closer and closer to both the halfway point of the season and the end point. Every one of these matchups, it's where you're playing specific teams in your division that are a huge part of your success leading into the season. I think the narrative is going to start becoming more and more like that uh, throughout the league. For me – you know, I want to see more of the AL wildcard picture kind of work itself out. I think, you know, Twins, Indians, White Sox are all kind of bunched up in the AL Central. I want to see 
who eventually stands out and takes those top two spots. And at the same time, that kind of forms the wild card picture. Um, Blue Jays, Orioles, Rangers, who's going to really stick in there? Are the Blue Jays going to be able to pull away? Start to really form that picture a little bit. And, of course, I'm going to be watching the White Sox and see how many more home runs they decide to hit this week. With 11 home runs in the last two games. I want to hear it. 27. No, we're going we're gonna to talk about it because we almost skipped it. I'm going to talk about it before we wrap it up here. 11 home runs in our last two games ties the club record. No, we cannot skip over this run. No, no, I was going to say we could tie it into the player of the week since Jose Abreu hit five of those. Ah, yes. I Don't worry, I plan to. 27 home runs in their last seven games breaks an MLB record of a number of home runs in a seven-game span. The part that worries me, the last 19 runs they've scored have been on homers. Um, I don't like that, but it's fun. And they have the most home runs in the American League, so... That's a fun team to watch. I'm going to keep watching whether or not they're fun because, well, I'm a White Sox fan. But. I think uh, I think Chris Kamka, who is tweets great stats, he mm-hmm. said like, over the time the White Sox have hit their last 28 home runs, they've allowed four home runs. Yeah. So and I mean, I think it, they also have the best home run differential in baseball now. It, it's, be, it's been a good stretch of baseball. I think you're seeing a team that, for as inconsistent as they're going to be with the young talent that they have, putting the other stretches like this is – what yeah. makes the future so fun for a White Sox fan? It's uh, it, well, it is nice to see them bounce back because they had a little rough stretch yeah. in there too. They started hot, they cooled off a little. Um, it's yeah, nice to see them back bounce up. back. Yeah, so I mean, you're starting to see the inconsistencies that come with a young lineup, but mm-hmm. with the inconsistent about, games come the fun. I think you pointed about how with the nineteen last nineteen runs being on home runs. Yeah, that shouldn't be too big of a concern in this modern game because oh, no. there are so many home runs. The ball is flying out of there. And that is definitely, you can keep that up going. Right. Like they're not solo. So. Home runs. That was what I was going to say. Right. They're not all solo home runs. You're getting runners on base. Uh, the process has been a lot better, but I, I would like to see that. Um, hopefully it doesn't become a home run or nothing offense. Cause that, that, that's my only concern. Um, but let's wrap it up with two predictions for the week from our, Writers here. We'll start with Sunday night baseball predictions in which you get the matchup that you didn't ask for, but you get anyway. <laughs> Phillies and Braves, Zach Eflin versus Josh Tomlin. I won't make fun of anybody for getting any of this wrong because I am currently 0-2. But let's give me a score prediction and a winner, and we'll start with Kelly. Oh, geez. Well, the... The Braves have been dealing with some injuries, so I'm going to go Phillies. Uh, neither of these pitchers are really aces. Mm-hmm. So uh, I think it might be high scoring, especially with that Phillies bullpen. Uh, I'll go 6-4 Phillies. 6-4 Phillies. Matthew, what you got? Um, that Phillies bullpen, still, I mean, they made that trade. Still not great. Got to go with the Braves. I think Phillies blow a lead late and lose 8-6. Ryan, what you got? I was following almost the exact same thought process as Callie, so I'm going to just bump it up a run and say 7-5 Bra- or Phillies. Excuse me. I'm going to sit out of predictions this week because I'm 0-2. I need a week off. I, I don't oh, think that's I don't think the Braves have the offense to punish the Phillies bullpen that hard. You know, speaking of the Braves, too, though, one name we forgot, Kristen Pash, 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 oh, however oh, you yeah, say Kristen his name. Pash debuted. We got to do a better job figuring out who gets called up every week because it is too hard to keep track. Too. There's so many, yeah. 
because that that's another good debut there to watch. Um, mm-hmm. Fine, I'll take the Braves just because I like their is even though they're injured, I still like their offense a bit better um, against a guy like Zach Eflin. But I'll take Braves. I'll go six three. I don't know. Because that's the one I put the least amount of thought into. It'll be the one that's right. We'll go with that. And finally, if, if I get the score right, I'm going and playing the lottery. Um, but we'll, we'll, we'll end with one final prediction, and that's Player of the Week Award. So you can I'm, – I'm going to kind of leave it open here because it's pretty difficult. I don't know how easy it is to follow what's going around um, every single ball player. Um, but I'll let you – but you got to at least take – one, it, it, let, let's just do it this way. You can pick as many as you want, make as many predictions as you want, but you have to give me the one where it's like, if you had to place a bet on this player or this pitcher being the player or pitcher of the week this week, you guarantee it would be him. Trent Grisham. Trent Grisham. Okay. You're going with the player of the week from the NL, Kelly. Would you like to make any other predictions? Uh, no. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> Matthew, what you got? Your one no. prediction, at least. I'll leave it open. I know it's hard. Right. I was for the NL. I was also looking. It's got to be someone on the Padres, right? I was looking at yeah. Cronin Worst, looking guess. at Grisham. They both had great weeks. And the AL, I know you mentioned earlier, Jose Abreu, insane week, fifteen at twenty-seven, six homers, only struck out three times. So if I had to pick one, it would be him in the AL. Ryan. Well. You know, I I do want to shout out Luke Voigt because he hit five homers and 17 plate appearances this week, which is pretty insane. But I would have to bet on a Brave. I mean, that's what I'm saying, too, about these predictions. It's like, I mean, Luke Voigt had a great week, too. Now, that's why I'm like, eh, it's fun to predict this, but I, I, I don't blame it for being so hard. I'm sticking yeah. with a Brayu. It yeah. Anderson, Tim Anderson, had himself a great start to the week against the Tigers, but... These past couple games, of Rays really stolen that from him. Um, I do think it will be a White Sox player for Player of the Week. Um, NL, Trent Grisham's probably the right call, Callie. I don't have enough conviction in my thought process to nearly pick a player this week. But we'll have to keep track of these predictions. We'll have to uh, find a way to hold people accountable for being right and wrong. But... That's going to do it for us this week, folks. If you're still listening, I'm hoping you are. Thanks for listening along with us. You can find us on social media everywhere, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, you name it. As I've said before, most of what we do is on Twitter at Diamond underscore Digest. You can also read along with all of our fabulous writers at Diamond Digest or Diamond hyphen, or hyphen Digest.com. Matthew, Catley, Ryan are all fabulous writers, and all of their stuff is featured there quite a bit. But we are done here for this week, folks. For Callie Sai, Matthew Penn, and Ryan Rudy, this is Jordan Lazowski signing off. Have a great week, everyone, and we'll talk to you next week. Take care.